0: Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Want support in parenting your child with ADHD or managing your own ADHD symptoms? Join the official ADHD Essentials Facebook community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash community to sign up. That last one is ADHD, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y no spaces. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, shoot me a line at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. I always enjoy talking to our listeners. Finally, if you haven't posted one already, I'd really appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. They help others find the show. and It is a great way to get the word out. Just remember to use a unique username or iTunes might not accept your post. This is episode 56. Today, we're talking to Dr. Noor Ali. Noor is the principal of Alhamra Academy, a private K-8 Islamic school. Noor has long been an advocate for students with special needs, and she brings her strong advocacy and thoughtful manner to the pod. In today's episode, we talk about the intersections and commonalities between the Muslim and ADHD experiences. We also talk about the importance of celebrating your child's diagnosis the special education challenges faced by small faith-based schools, and how a child is like an interactive canvas. All right, let's get rolling.
1: I'm the principal at Alhamra Academy, and I recently completed my doctorate from Northeastern University in education. My uh, specialty was curriculum, leadership, learning, and teaching. And my dissertation focus was looking at a marginalized population and what the narrative of uh, that population is like. Particularly, I looked at the narrative of Muslim American students, um, high school seniors, and what the experience of their formal and informal educational journeys is like.
0: That's really what I want to talk to you about, right, is, is the intersection of that and ADHD.
1: Absolutely. And on a personal note, um, I'm dyslexic. My son is dyslexic uh, as well. And, you know, finding relevance um, for the experience of a dyslexic has really been important in my own positionality, which led me to get certified in identifying kids with dyslexia as well, coming from a marginalized population.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And also, I know that there are members of this audience that are affected by dyslexia, either because their kids have it or they have it or whatever the case may be. So sharing that is something that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Let's start with looking at the Islamic population. Is there a, Perspective that we can say the Islamic population has on ADHD? Is it as spread out and broad as sort of our Western Anglo American perspective, where some people think it doesn't exist and other people think that it's totally valid and concerning?
1: A bit of both, really. Um, Through these almost 15 years now, I've really seen that there definitely has been a growth in parents' understanding of special needs, uh, of ADHD of dyslexia very little, but there is definitely this reluctance that comes and this denial that is the first response of most parents in the communities that I've worked with. So as a teacher and as a principal of a private school, we really have to be very careful as we tread this area in the sense that if a teacher or a principal feels that a student potentially could be diagnosed with ADHD. There is no way that that can come across like that on the table. It really can't be said as it is. Coming from a private school, we have to make sure that we've brought the parents to an understanding that evaluation needs to get done. And there is generally going to be a resistance to uh, understanding what the issue is.
0: And I know personally that that's a piece of a role that I've played with your school, where I've come in and done workshops to, I'm assuming, lighten some of that load. It
1: definitely is. I mean, the workshops that we've had you come conduct at the school for the parents were exactly with that perspective. If you remember, um, the first time that you came and spoke with them, we decided not to use the word ADHD on the flyer, but use the word social emotional learning. On the flyer, because putting ADHD there would definitely mean that parents will self-diagnose their kids out of it and be like, "Hey, this has nothing to do with me." And then the second time round, we had you come in. We did it more in terms of identifying ADHD because more often than not, parents are not going to see this in their uh, in their child. And and then the other way to look at it also is is if I have a population of 170 kids at the workshops, the turnout is very little. It's a fraction compared to the number of students and parents that we have. And that generally speaks to, you know, the reluctance to come to something that potentially mean looking at something differently.
0: And where does that reluctance come from?
1: I think part of that reluctance has to do with a lack of awareness And a fear. A lot of people feel that getting an evaluation or a diagnosis uh, means that you're going to be labeled for life and that this is going to negatively impact your career. You know, I've had conversations where parents may be reluctant to go forward with an evaluation because they don't know what implications it's going to have on the students' college admissions way into the future. There's also a lack of awareness. There's also misunderstanding. In the case of dyslexia, for example, it's often misdiagnosed. It's easier to say that your child is being lazy about reading or is just not focusing enough because she doesn't want to Mm -hmm. or is all over the place and that's her personality as opposed to saying, hey, there's actually you know, this can be, there's an evaluation for this, and this can be diagnosed, and this means, therefore, that we have to have A, B, and C in place. A lot of time, parents also think that an ADHD diagnosis will necessarily mean medication, and I think there's generally a fear of that as well. Most of my student population has been born and raised here, but I can't say that for their parents. Um, so parents might have been born and raised elsewhere, not all of them, but certainly half of them at least have been. so I also think that there is a a bit of a cultural understanding of like, hey, we grew up okay back home. I was just like my kid growing up. Nobody ever asked my parents to get an evaluation for me, and look at me, I'm perfectly fine now, so there is this very clear I think this kind of distinction in their minds of. Being okay can definitely not mean having ADHD, as opposed to saying that, you know, you have ADHD. Here are a bit of struggles that we can work with and have strategies provided for. You know, it doesn't mean nothing's ever going to be okay. So I think there's this kind of a misunderstanding and a lack of awareness around it.
0: That whole idea of like, well, I was fine, so my kid will be okay too. Yeah. I know I find that if you push on that a little bit and I'm not saying that you should push on this and this is more for the benefit of my audience. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't have that perspective, but your spouse might, or your grandparents might, or the kid's grandparents or something like that. I find that if you push back on that a little bit and you're like, really? Like nothing was hard. All of a sudden it's like, oh no, well, I remember math is really hard and I hated writing essays and I had all kinds of trouble getting my chores done. And it's like, okay. So. Can we have a conversation around if we can define what the challenge is, we may be able to better target those difficulties. And that's true for dyslexia. It's true for ADHD and really anything that makes someone want to say, oh, no, the kid's just lazy or the kid just isn't motivated. To me, those answers are just, I don't want to look any deeper because I'm afraid of what I might find and that I might not know what to do with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I can say that in my case, uh, my older son was in second grade when I finally figured out that he was dyslexic and it was doing my own research. I couldn't understand what the issue was. I was a teacher and I had all of these kids around me that I could compare him to. Like there's 20 other kids that I can compare him too and i'm definitely seeing that he needs a different kind of support system he needs you know needs help what's also interesting is is that you can become a teacher but not necessarily ever have been trained in identifying adhd or dyslexia or all of those things so that that whole cycle is then just warped and if you're in a private school you don't have to be licensed so you probably did not go through student teaching. You might have a degree in education. That doesn't mean that you were ever exposed to learning differences in this way. So in second grade, when he was in second grade, I figured this out on my own that, you know, he's dyslexic. And it was really through that journey afterwards as I was getting my certification and everything that I realized that, hey, I'm dyslexic. My dad was acutely dyslexic. And yes, we did grow up and did whatever we had to do. But that in no way means that we can deny the struggle that was there. And in some ways, we developed strategies by fluke, uh, you know, that helped us. But being aware of it really gave me tools to be able to address it right.
0: And just to point out, for those in the audience who are sort of going man, dyslexia, ADHD, this stuff is really hard. How's my kid going to get to where they need to go? One, you're listening to this podcast. You're taking some of the right steps because this is probably not the only step you're taking around ADHD or dyslexia. You might be listening to this episode with that in mind as well. And also, we've got two exemplars right here talking to each other. Nor, with dyslexia, has a doctorate. That's no joke. That's advanced education and advanced degree. And I have two master's degrees with ADHD. So these things can happen. You can get advanced degrees. You can continue on in education. It's just a matter of finding the strategies and skills that you need to have. Whether it's by fluke or by coach, it can be done.
1: I also think, Brendan, that more than that, there's also a celebration that's important. For my son, for example, when he found out And he found out when he was in seventh grade that he was dyslexic. So all the way from second to seventh, I'm working with him on reading with the strategies that I had learned, etc. And it was only in seventh grade that he self-discovers that he's dyslexic. But when he did, it was really a celebration for him because he realized that behind him were big names like Einstein, what have you. Um. Who were also dyslexic so to always think of it as something special and something that you're going to be able to tap into uh, is just so important
0: and also it defines your sandbox a lot of people look at a disability diagnosis as something bad but i look at it as a benefit because especially dyslexia and adhd these things have been studied pretty thoroughly and there's certainly more work to be done but we've got a lot of research under our belts at this point point. and having that diagnosis now we know what works as opposed to our neurotypical people who all kinds of stuff might work and you have to experiment a lot we can eliminate a whole lot of stuff that we know doesn't work and start bringing to bear strategies that are more likely to be effective for us so in terms of the islamic side of your school you've mentioned that it's a marginalized population it's a vulnerable population can we talk a little bit about what that means, sort of in parallel to ADHD? In what way are Islamic kids is a Muslim school and a marginalized or vulnerable population?
1: So, well, I think there's a couple of things to look at here. One is, by default, if you're going to a Muslim school, you're making an announcement of an identity. If you were just going to any school, you know, you could pass off as not being muslim so there's that whole identity piece that comes there to it going to a muslim school is an acknowledgement of that identity to begin with if you're now on the town soccer team and there's these bunch of kids from the public school of your district and you're playing with them and they're like what school are you from and they say Alhambra, that is you know it's a flag of sorts of difference of an othering in the political and social climate there there is marginalization and discrimination there is microaggression there is micro invalidation there is generally this idea amongst muslim students young students themselves that their experience is irrelevant to the mainstream
0: and what are those microaggressions and micro invalidations that you mentioned can you give us a couple of examples of that so we understand it a little better
1: there is going to be some point in time where Each of these children are going to hear the phrase, go back to where you came from, go back home. There is going to be a time when these kids are going to be made fun of because of their name being difficult to pronounce by other kids or by their teachers. There's going to be a time when if it's a female student and she covers the hair, there is going to be a comment made about what is she hiding under the scarf.
0: Oh, I never would have thought of that one. That's
1: yeah, it's it, it, it's very common. Just last month, in the Framingham public school system, there was a Muslim student, I think eight or ten years, or ten years old, no more than ten, who was receiving death threats in her backpack, in her desk.
0: That's beyond a microaggression.
1: That's beyond a microaggression. So there's outright oppression like this. And then there's micro oppressions or micro invalidations where some experience is being shared in the classroom and the teacher or other students will make a comment like, you might not know this, but, you know, something, something. For example, the significance of having turkey on Thanksgiving, it might come with an assumption that a student who is Muslim doesn't know about it or this is irrelevant to them. You know, she'll make a comment or a male student will make a comment and the teacher will be clearly impressed by, oh, I didn't think you could do that or I didn't think you knew that. So there are these series of invalidations and microaggressions that take place. Think of it in terms of Ramadan. It's a whole month that now is going to come during the, school, the student school year, right? So this year Ramadan is going to start mid-May. It's going to go on till mid-June, which means the students are going to be in school. It's a month of fasting. A lot of our students are not going to be eating during school hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for a young child to be a, to explain to his or her classmates, why he's not having lunch when everyone else is, and to be seated in the cafeteria. While there is no discourse on this in the school, uh, like there's no welcome Ramadan for our Muslim students in school. You know, these students will not be in the cafeteria having lunch because they are fasting. There's no acknowledgement of that sort. So obviously their behavior looks really off. Or uh, the afternoon prayer comes during school hours as well. And a lot of times our students will find a hidden or a secret spot in school to pray because there's no designated spot for them to pray.
0: There's a lot in there I want to unpack. (laughs) So let me poke around a little bit. One of the things that it's important for me to do with this episode is to draw parallels between those microaggressions that you just referenced, because I'm sure that there are people listening who heard the phrase microaggression and were like, oh, what microaggression? Because there's plenty of people out there who have that perspective, right? And now I want to flip it and ha- and talk about microaggressions that are aimed at kids and adults with ADHD because it happens to us too. And by drawing that parallel, hopefully we can create some compassion and some empathy for not just Islamic people, but, but marginalized populations in general. Because we hear. And we already talked about this earlier. Oh, they're just lazy. Oh, they just don't care. Oh, they're just not engaged. They're just a space cadet. My personal favorite microaggression towards ADHD, and by favorite, I mean it's the one that bugs me the most, is squirrel. I hate that. Like that's not a thing, and, and it's not even accurate. It's really more movement. It's not that we're distracted by the shiny object or the squirrel. It's something moves, and it caught my attention. So we are affected by microaggressions as the marginalized population that is people with ADHD in the same way that African-Americans, Islamic-Americans, Asian-Americans, Jewish-Americans, fill-in-the-blank Americans are. And so it's really important to me that I point that out. And then also the fact that you run a private school for Islamic students. Part of the point, part of the reason, I imagine, your students are going to that school is to insulate themselves against those microaggressions. It's a safe or safer place. Is that accurate?
1: It's twofold. One is to provide a safe space for learning where they don't have to explain themselves. Having said that, when they reach eighth grade, which is our graduating class, around that time, we have a lot of conversations of what the transition is going to be like. We do mock episodes of where they will have to explain themselves, what kind of questions will come their way and how they should respond, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is to not just provide them a safe space, but to also provide them an environment where they can learn principles of faith, which would otherwise be excluded from uh, a secular learning environment. So it's really two things at the same time.
0: And sort of hopping off on my soapbox for a second, I guess, um, and, and, and looking at the nature of just the fact that you run a private school with or without religion. There's plenty of private schools out there, Catholic schools, special education, specific schools, just private schools that are that are secular. How does special education, and in this case, through the lens of ADHD, play out in a private school that might be different from a public school?
1: It's vastly different. First thing is is that we do not have resources. That's a big area that we're lacking and there is no state or federal support in terms of providing us with any resources. Resources in terms of materials, resources in terms of teaching staff. So we do not have a special ed teacher on board. And having a special ed teacher would really mean reevaluating our budget cutting corners elsewhere. This is a not-for-profit school, so you can imagine we break even. So that's one big piece. The second thing is that because we don't have the SPED resource, we're really leaving it to the teachers not to come up with an evaluation, but we're leaving it to the teachers, initiate a conversation with the parents who will then seek an evaluation from the district. So mm-hmm. it becomes a really long-winded process in the sense if I have a student and I notice that who needs to go in for an evaluation, step one is going to be sit down with the parents no matter how many times and try to convince them to get an evaluation through the district. I can't ask for it, they have to ask.
0: And you've already mentioned the reluctance that they have, so that's got oh be- yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, school started in September. I still have kids that need to go in for an evaluation at this point. Half the year is almost over. So once the parents agree to that, then I have to put them in touch with uh, if they're not able to do so. I have to put them in touch with the department at the district Uh, for Shrewsbury. For example, they would go to the town hall and they would register their kid in the Shrewsbury public school system and then ask for a referral. Then we would have them reach out to us for why this was asked, do the observations, do the testing, then be called for the IEP meeting or not. So it's just that first additional step of getting the parents on board and then making sure that the parents are not just on board, but actually went and registered their kid. Because a lot of times parents will think registering their kid means pulling them out of our school and Mm -hmm. Registering as an enrolling there forever, which is not the case. It's kind of like an empty registration that's happening for the purposes of the evaluation. All of that just generally takes at least four to six weeks to happen.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of education around special education practices and laws and guidelines that your parents just sort of need,
1: which they're not aware of. Also, they're all not coming from Shrewsbury. So that's an additional piece on my end. For example, if a kid coming from Oxford uh, or a kid coming from Worcester, e- even though the laws are the same, the process of getting an evaluation is different in every district.
0: Can I put on my coach and consultant hat real quick? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and, and this is like, you're going to hear this and go, oh, more work. And I apologize for that. <laughs> but um, it might be worth it cause you might save yourself a ton of work in the long run. If you can create a document that you provide to parents, even something that could live on the website and also maybe be printed out, that is a guideline for how to navigate that process. And also that provides sort of like a frequently asked questions scenario. So they don't have to ask the questions. They don't have to feel that vulnerability that I'm sensing some resistance to something that says like, if your kid has a diagnosis of ADHD or dyslexia or whatever, It's not going to impact college like that doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, I think definitely creating a document like that in layperson language is important. I know the districts give us child find paperwork that we give to parents. I know for a fact that the parents are not reading that because it's it's just a lot of material. And also reading it. I mean, I know that the parents generally, because it's a private school again, want that kind of personalized service from the principal or the teacher or admin, that this is needed. And also think of it in, in these terms. This is my second year being principal. You know, at this point, I'm trying to streamline that process. And in doing so, discovering that, wait a second, just because I did this work in terms of process for Shrewsbury does not mean it's going to apply to the kids who are coming from Worcester. So I have to do it differently for these different places. And every year, of course, there's kids coming from different towns. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still figuring that bit
0: out. So one of the things that you mentioned was that, at least in Shrewsbury, in order for parents from a private school, because this isn't the case for public schools. Yeah. Um, in a public school, they just write a letter to the principal and stuff gets rolling. But one of the things you mentioned in Shrewsbury is they've got to go, parents have to go to the town hall to make that request for special education services and, and evaluation. Given the reluctance that you've already talked about, and tell me when I go wrong here, because I might, um, and, and my audience should hear that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but looking at it with my admittedly not thorough enough multicultural training, some of where I'm thinking this reluctance comes from is that nature of the community being more significant in Islamic culture than it is in American culture. In American, we're sort of all individuals. We don't care as much about what everyone else thinks. We do, but we like to pretend that we don't. Whereas in Islamic culture, that eyes of the community matters a lot more. And parents are being asked to go to the town hall, which is like the center of the community. So I can see why that resistance would be there, assuming I'm right. Is, the, is this making sense?
1: Um, I, I don't know. I think it's, in, in my understanding, it's more of an additional step. I mean, imagine a parent who's already registered and enrolled their child at your school and you're telling them Mm -hmm. now to go register and enroll their kid at another school while they're gonna stay here. It's, you know, it's an additional loop. Shrewsbury Public Schools is really helpful, but it's just the way it's set up. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's problematic. And as far as the community uh, point is concerned, yes, There is definitely a lot of sense of community uh, within the population, and I guess that's where that first piece comes in. Where I have to make sure that I sit and I meet with everybody who I think requires an evaluation while this process takes place. It's not as simple as just pointing them and saying, Please get in, please register your kid and ask for an evaluation. That's not ever going to (laughs) happen.
0: So, in some ways, You're coming at the community side from the opposite direction, right? Like you're the community support helping the parents do the thing they need to do. Right. Instead of just handing them a pamphlet and saying, follow this to the instructions.
1: And a lot of times my conversation is like, hey, I need help. You know, uh, my teachers need help in being able to service your child better. Mm -hmm. And the way we can make that happen is if we have an evaluation and an IEP done, and that there's nothing to be afraid of. So there's a whole coaching spiel that must take place for the parents before we can overcome that resistant barrier to uh, going forward with an evaluation. Now it's not the case with everyone but mostly that is what I have to do. Like there has never in my career been one parent who I simply could send an email to and it would get done.
0: So now I'm thinking about the workshops that I did last year and things I should have done differently. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking that we need to set up a workshop that we will call Helping Your Child Succeed in School.
1: Yes. And that will get a, you know,
0: yeah. now,
1: now you get it, right? Like, <laughs> yep. putting,
0: putting this is ADHD me learning. In.
1: So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you have to speak the language that will be understood.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking it doesn't even have to be ADHD, but it can, no. we can talk executive function, we can talk social emotional learning, we can talk about the role emotions play in everything from homework to classroom behavior. And in amongst all of that conversation, I can also talk about if your kid's struggling and might need some special education services, here are the steps. And hopefully normalize that a little bit, not completely. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a miracle worker, but making it a little more comfortable, knocking bricks out of that wall of awful that the parents of your school have, maybe we can make it a little bit easier for them to access the supports that their kids may or may not need. So circling back to, I guess, just the nature of being an Islamic private school. And, and you mentioned that teachers don't necessarily have to be licensed to work in a private school. And I imagine some of yours are licensed and some of them aren't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What does ADHD look like in your school? What are those kids struggling with? Where are they succeeding? What's that about?
1: Well, first, I I also want to say that it's, it's I don't think it's something that's particular to Muslim schools, I think it's something that is particular to small budget private schools or mm-hmm. faith based schools. Um, recently, I was at a, I was on the accrediting team for a school in Rhode Island that is Catholic, and I was really interested in seeing how they were navigating SPED, and it was identical to what happens with us. All the people who were on the accrediting team were from small faith-based schools that were not Muslim. I was the only Muslim school there. Um, And all of them had this identical experience. So I think that a lot of it has to do with resources and limitation of resources. But yeah, so what it looks like is the first response of the educators to someone with ADHD is, uh, there's always going to be a fear of labeling it because I think there is this acute understanding that we are not in a position to classify because there has been no formal evaluation. The second feeling is one of dread, which is dreading the long haul, because we know that this process is not going to be wrapped up quickly. Mm-hmm. And now we figured out there's something that requires an evaluation. And now we're like, oh, no, no. What are we going to do now? We know from that moment of realization to actually getting an observation is going to take at least one and a half month. So that's the other thing. So a lot of times we're looking at kids and reaching this conclusion that they're troublemakers. And I think that helps nobody. I think it defeats the teachers, first of all. There's quick burnout because now you feel like, oh, my God, I'm stuck with this kid. There's no way I can wrap my head around this. It's destroying the classroom climate. My own perception is classroom climate is something that doesn't set itself. We have to set it. And then for the child also, that wall of awful is systematically becoming stronger and bigger because now there's a lot of self-labeling. Uh, A lot of perception that he or she is just going to be stuck in about themselves because there are no strategies that are being used to deal with it. And I say deal with it (laughs) the way it's used. Like there aren't support strategies in place that can help that child regulate emotions better, all those types of things. I mean, it's a lose-lose situation on both ends until we can reach some kind of help or support.
0: This is sending me back to an interview I did with uh, actually my sister, the one year anniversary episode that is will have come out by the time this episode posts. She's a fourth grade teacher. And uh, I'm not remembering perfectly what she said. But the gist of it was, if you teach your classroom as though everybody has ADHD, then everyone will be able to learn. Yep, And the ADHD issues, while they'll still be there, they'll be a little less because you're sort of addressing things in a different way. And um, I imagine that's an overwhelming thought for a lot of teachers, but I do professional developments and I'll come back. Um, <laughs> and steering the school in that direction where a couple more ADHD-friendly approaches that apply to everybody as opposed to just the ADHD kid, because like outside of buildings, including the town hall that all your parents have to go to, there's ramps and there's stairs, right?
1: Right, yeah.
0: And if you look at the ramp and you're like, "Oh, that's such a pain in the butt." Is it really? Or could everybody use the ramp? Like we could get rid of the stairs and everyone would still be able to get into the building. But if we get rid of the ramp, only people who can use stairs can get in and your handicapped people won't be able to.
1: Right. I think essentially what we're talking about is uh, universal design. Right. Right? Universal design is, you know, is inclusive in meeting the needs of several people. And, you know, really the basis of differentiating instruction is is that you're able to reach out to all your students and support them in the best way, whether it's the content, the process or the product that any lesson is hoping to achieve. Yes, in an ideal world, you would teach a classroom full of kids where everyone (laughs) was was learning the same way, was sitting quietly, and was uh, swallowing information and regurgitating it. Uh, (laughs) But these are people, these are human beings. My father used to say uh, something that's really stuck with me. I didn't quite understand it as well then as I do now. he said, raising a child, which I think is akin to teaching children, is like painting. He said, when the artist has a canvas and he puts paint on it, the canvas takes that paint and reflects it but a child is an active canvas not always when you put red will you see red you are going to see something else because it reacts mm-hmm. and it engages and interacts with you and he said that's why it's the most beautiful picture you can paint because it wasn't just you making it it was a child making it as well so You know, there's going to be different kids and there's all these different canvases in a classroom and they're all responding differently. And um, sadly, they're all being categorized in the minds of the educator, uh, which can sometimes inhibit (laughs) what you expect of them or what the child expects of themselves as well. You know, of course, it's meaningful work. It's hard, but that's what it is.
0: So just being mindful of time. Yeah. Do you have any ending essentials around running a private school or ADHD or dyslexia or any of the things we've talked about or something entirely new that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: I think that there's definitely parallels to draw between all marginalized populations in terms of an experience of struggle, um, which can be challenging. But at the same time, also we often see students develop or show us resilience in in the face of these challenges. And I think the important thing there really is to have that kind of mentorship, that kind of support that will help develop that resilience and that doesn't break these kids when they're faced with uh, micro oppressions. I think having that is really important. So, you know, for the adults who are listening. I think it's really important to see ourselves in in that light of is there someone I can offer support to? Is there someone I can mentor? Because marginalization will come in different forms, but it will have an inhibiting experience first before it has a strengthening experience if the children lack that kind of support system around themselves. We've talked about students, parents, and educators in small not-for-profit private schools faith-based or not and how the struggle is super real Uh, (laughs) but I think that with consistent effort and with resources and if we see the value in small private schools and supporting them you know as providing education just like public schools do I think it would be more equitable if we were able to support them better.
0: Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. better is all you need.